You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. Uh, That's where we'll be this morning. Thanks to Lydia for reading through that passage for us. If you don't have a Bible, I think there are Bibles nearby in some of the seats, and you can grab one of those and flip open to page 618 in that Bible. If you don't have a Bible uh, that you own, you can take that with you as the church's gift to you. We want you to own a Bible, so please take that. As you're flipping there, um, I will affirm what Jason said. Uh, We are living the beautiful mess right now personally as a family. Really appreciate you sharing uh, the golf cart escapade with the entire church. That's awesome. Um, That is true. Had to get two high school boys to drive me to a nearby Chick-fil-A because the cart died, and uh, it is still sitting off uh, on the side of a cart path uh, in the interlocking subdivision, I believe. So, um, it is nowhere near where it needs to be, but that's okay. Um, and in the midst of all of that, uh, we have 22 bags of trash in our garage we counted because we uh, just now got a trash can yesterday, and so it's heaping up into this giant mountain in our garage along with like 200 cardboard boxes, so it's mass insanity. It is unbelievably a beautiful mess. That's our lives right now. Personally, um, as we talk about the church being a beautiful mess, uh, we know that uh, that has to do ultimately with uh, the fall and sin in our lives and the reality of the broken world that we, we live in, and yet we have even logistical messes that we have to walk through as human beings on planet Earth as well. It's not just a not just our lives that are a beautiful mess, it's the church comprehensively, right? We've been talking about that for about a month and a half now, and we'll continue to leading up until Easter Sunday. And when we say that the church is a beautiful mess, we're not just talking about the church in Corinth. We're talking about this church, and we're talking about every church that's existed in the entirety of the New Testament era. And going back to last week, there's a reason that no church is perfect, that we use that language of the church being a beautiful mess. If you, if you remember, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, let me catch you up to speed. I took you uh, through this word picture of uh, what it means to become a Christian and what happens when you become a Christian and then what it looks like to be a Christian for the rest of your life. And I leaned heavily on John Piper's commentary of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so here's how I explained it. Um, Picture in your mind a kingdom that's surrounded by walls that that, uh, surround the perimeter of the kingdom. And in the center of that kingdom is a castle. And within the castle is a throne. And if you're not a Christian, you sit on that throne right now. And Jesus is outside the walls of the kingdom, and there's a hostility toward him, a a desire not to let him in so that he can't dethrone you. And what happens when you become a Christian is the Holy Spirit busts through the walls of your kingdom like a Sherman tank and makes his way toward the castle and executes you. So I shared with you Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 last week, which says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, that there's a crucifixion that happens in our lives as we become Christians. Romans 6, 6 says it this way, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the the Holy Spirit executed you and told Jesus, take the throne. In, in that person's life, in their, in their kingdom. Meanwhile, outside the castle, the kingdom is filled with chaos, right? 
the, the troops haven't heard outside the castle that there's a new king in town. And so there's a battle that ensues. It's, it's all insanity. It's mass chaos. Some have heard, but they don't want the new king to plant flags of dominion in certain parts of the kingdom, in certain parts of your life. And so there's a great battle that ensues between the troops of the flesh and the troops of, of the new king, Jesus. And so in other words, though the the rightful king has taken his throne, uh, there's still this war to be waged as flags of dominion are planted in your life and in mine by this new king and his army. There, there's this tension all throughout the pages of scripture if you read through the New Testament. The king's on the throne, and yet more flags must be planted, and they will be planted for the remainder of your life. And that's what we mean when we use the language of sanctification as a Christian. So when you become a Christian, for the rest of your life, all that's happening is that the new king, Jesus, is planting small flags of dominion one after another, after another, after another by the power of the Holy Spirit until you die. It's progressive, it's not overnight, it's not immediate, and so there's grace for those who, who are experiencing a slow, grueling process of, of being conformed more and more into the image of the king. And because that's true, there's no perfect church, which is why we use this language of the beautiful mess, because every church is filled with people who still need flags of dominion to be planted in various parts of, of their lives, in various parts of the kingdom. And so my hope for you and me this morning as we, as we continue through this letter of Paul's would be that you and I would see Jesus for who he is, that we would savor him more as infinitely beautiful, and that we would see flags of dominion planted in our lives, be it quickly or be it slow and, and in a grueling type of, of way. And so let me give you a roadmap for where we're going this morning. There's a reason that I had Lydia read the text for us this morning in order, and it's because uh, we're going to go backwards this morning in the text. So here's the, here's the roadmap. Uh, we're going to start with uh, verses 14 through 21, where we see Paul finally giving us uh, the reason behind why he's written everything up to this point. So we've been in this book of the Bible for a month and a half now. We started in chapter 1, verse 1. We've worked our way through. We're now in chapter 4. And Paul finally, at the end of chapter 4, says, here's the reason I've written everything I've written to you for four and a half chapters now. So we're gonna take a look at that, why Paul's writing what he's writing, and then we're gonna work our way backwards to the paragraph before that that gives the root of the problem that's causing him to write in the first place. And then we're gonna look at the hope of the gospel that we find in the first few verses of chapter four. So we're, we're going backwards, didn't want you guys to be totally confused as to what we were doing. So we read it in its order, but now we work our way in reverse. So I want to begin with verses 14 through 21 and talk about this reason for, for Paul's writing what he's writing. Um, we, we finally get the motive for Paul putting a pen to paper here, and it's that of a father admonishing his children. So the word admonish here, here has the idea of placing your mind. So Paul is literally saying, I want to help you guys get your head screwed on straight. That, that's the language of admonishment in this verse. And he's saying, I'm doing so because I love you like a father loves his child. Now, for some in the room, and this is me included, you hear the language of, of fatherhood, and it's hard for you to wrap your mind around that, to wrap your heart around that, because your dad's not a very honorable person. And, and you can fill in the blank on why that is. Maybe he checked out on you when you were very young. For me, uh, my mom and dad got a divorce when I, I believe I was four, and went Splitsville, and, and essentially our relationship was a child support check once a month, 
And so for me, the idea of fatherhood doesn't make a lot of sense. Oftentimes when I pick up the scriptures, it's been by the grace of God that I have any concept of what a father is. Maybe for some in the room, it's even worse than that. Maybe you've been abused physically or emotionally by your dad or even sexually. Or maybe your dad was harsh toward you. Or maybe your dad made you feel like you never measured up. I don't know what what it might be for you. Some of you have great fathers, and and this is not a hard concept for you to wrap your mind around. But for those of you who you do, uh, you hear the language of fatherhood, and you go, no thanks. I'll just check out. I'll just become a drone for the next five or ten minutes till we get to that paragraph before this one, and just, I'm going to shut down. If that's you, my prayer this morning is that you would encounter God as a loving father, a father who loves you so much that he would crush his son in order to make you sons and daughters. That's what I hope will happen. And the only way that happens is if the Holy Spirit makes that happen in your heart. I can't do that, but I pray that he would if that's your story, if your story is similar to mine. Paul uses the language of father here, and it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. He's saying, I pass down the gospel to you like a father passes down an inheritance to his children. I delivered the good news of the gospel to you, and you received it. And as a result, I'm like a father to you, a father in the faith. Paul says, you guys have countless guides Uh, We see that in in this paragraph. And what Paul's using the language of here is the language of a guardian to a minor or the language of a tutor to a child trying to teach them. So he's going back to this idea that we talked about last week of the, the saints in Corinth being infants in Christ. He's saying there needs to be a growth and a maturity about you, but there's not yet. And he says there, there are plenty of guardians that you guys have. There are plenty of tutors, but you need the loving admonishment of a father right now. Having fathers in the faith is huge. It's crucial in the life of the local church, and it's usually what's absent in a church planting context, right? Because um, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but usually uh, when a church is planted, the demographic tends to be uh, anywhere between 10 years the senior of, of the lead pastor all the way down to 10 years minor, or below the age of the the lead pastor. And so you have this 20-year window that you usually see, and it usually takes several years to get beyond that and to become a multi-generational church. And and I believe that the church suffers all the while until she gets there because there's this deep need for people who have walked miles and miles in shoes that we've never put on ourselves and to have them speak wise, godly counsel into our lives. And to be sure, that that doesn't always have to do with age, right? Um, There's some who can be very high up in age who are still infants in Christ, like Paul talks about in chapter 3. But oftentimes there is an equating of those who have been on planet Earth for a really long time and who understand the realities of the fallen, broken world that we live in and who see Jesus as an even sweeter savior, Savior as a result of that. Doesn't this sound like fatherly language? In verse 18, Paul says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with with love and a spirit of gentleness? Sounds like Paul's saying, don't make me come over there. Right, Like a dad who, who's heard that something's going down and he's left the house. In fact, in uh, David Garland's commentary on this passage, he says it this way. It's up on the screen. He says, It is not an open rebellion against Paul's authority. Their arrogant self-importance is like that of little children who have the house to themselves when the parents have slipped out for a minute. Again, it's this picture of a, of a loving father in the faith admonishing infants in Christ. So what does Paul mean 
when he uses this language of uh, the kingdom of God consisting not in talk, but in power. Paul's saying talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. We can say a lot of things that are not backed up by a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Going back to last week, remember, we talked about these flags of dominion that God plants in your lives, and, and that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit humbling you and revealing sin in your life and you acknowledging it and confessing it to God and seeking to walk in further faith and repentance. That's not talk. There's the power of God at work in your life when every flag of dominion gets planted in your life one at a time. There are a ton of unrepentant people in the world who can talk circles around you and me theologically. There are lots of those people out there. Or maybe that's you. Maybe you're the person who can talk circles theologically around others, and yet you live a powerless, unrepentant life where the Holy Spirit's not at work. Paul's saying, Lord willing, I'm coming, and I'm not looking for words. I'm looking for flags. That's the language here. Paul loves these people, and he loves them so much that he's willing to go break off a switch in the backyard if he has to to get them on the right track. But he says, I don't want to do that. I'd much rather come to you in a spirit of gentleness if you'll repent before I show up on the scene, if you'll receive this admonishment, this rebuke, and if you'll turn back to Jesus. If you look at verses 16 and 17, this is incredibly interesting to me. Sounds counterintuitive. Paul says, Get your head screwed on straight, and what that means is you need to be more like me. Look at verse 16. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. What does that mean, to be imitators of Paul? That sounds really egotistical, does it not? I mean, how dare Paul say, imitate me, be like me, guys. If, if you or I said that to someone, how would that go? Hey, I see that your head's not screwed on really straight, and so let me help you out a little bit with that. What I want you to do is I want you to imitate my life a little bit more. That, that's what I think would, would better your life. If you would just get on the path that I'm walking on and, and just follow every step that I take, you'll be just fine. Sounds super egotistical, right, for Paul to say that. But strangely, it's not. Here's what crushes that argument. The argument's crushed when you think about what Paul is actually asking these people to imitate. Think about Paul's life for a second. He's calling them to imitate his lowliness. He's calling them to imitate his humility, his being considered a fool by the world's standard, his being considered weak, his living a life that communicates to the world that apart from God's grace, he's nothing. Remember going back to chapter one, Paul says, I had to be died for just like you guys. I didn't die for anybody. Jesus died for me. And that's what Paul's calling them to imitate. When someone says, imitate my greatness, my strength, my honor, that's an egotistical statement. When someone says, imitate my lowliness, my weakness, my being dishonored and seen as foolish in the world's eyes, when someone talks like that, they're not being egotistical. They're actually seeking to destroy egotism in the recipient that the message is coming across to. And in fact, Paul's gonna qualify this statement as we get further into this book in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, if, if what I'm telling you to imitate doesn't look or sound or feel like Jesus, don't do it. It's not egotistical at all. On a side note, 
I find it really interesting that in verse 17, Paul weaves doctrine and conduct together, that they're in sync with one another. Look at verse 17. He says, that is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. The word ways here, it comes from the Greek word hadas, which is where we get the language of a path or a road or a journey. And so Paul's saying, follow in my footsteps, follow the path that I'm on, do as I do. It's the language of conduct, living in a way that honors the new king who now sits on the throne in the castle of your life. And yet he, he weaves doctrine and conduct together, saying, my aim is to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. So there's teaching that goes hand in hand with living in Paul's theology that both doctrine and conduct matter tremendously. Think about it this way. You can focus on conduct without doctrine and completely miss Jesus. It's called legalism. It's called moralism, and it's prevalent in the Bible Belt subculture that we live in. There are a lot of people in this world that are concerned with morality because they believe if they do enough good that God will then look upon them and uh, see them favorably and finally love them. And what the need is in that particular person's life is doctrine that informs their conduct, that undergirds it, that empowers it, namely the beauty of the truth of the gospel. That The truth of the gospel has to inform, it has to empower that conduct. Otherwise, it's moralism. It's legalism. On the flip side, you can focus on doctrine without conduct and completely miss it as well. And there are a couple of ways that this can happen. The first one uh, would be, what we would refer to as licentiousness, which is just a big word that means operating without bounds or limits. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. If you've ever read the book of Romans, the first five chapters, Paul goes crazy on the grace of God, right? He gets super lavish in his unpacking of how God's grace functions and works and how we see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's so lavish about the grace of God in the first five chapters of the book of Romans that when he gets to Romans 6, he has to cut off at the pass a thought that he assumes is in the minds of the saints in Rome, which is this. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Okay, there's, there's the grace of God and it covers all things. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if grace covers all sin, should we just sin all the more? Because that way we can just heap more grace, and the grace of God just looks really good. So let's just go crazy. And Paul says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That believing the doctrinal truth that flows from the gospel should never lead to an abuse of God's grace. The truth of the gospel compels our obedience. It undergirds it. It, it empowers it. Our glad submission to King Jesus, the one who, who died for us. Now, that's one way it can happen, this life with no bounds that abuses the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. The other one is intellectualism, and this is huge as well, right thinking that's absent of right feeling and right doing. Or you might say uh, the head engaged in the things of God, absent of the heart and the hands. There are some people who sit in a proverbial tower all day long, an ivory tower, reading systematic theology books and turning into theological bobbleheads who have no affection for God and no intention to put hands and feet to the very things that they claim to believe. 
And yet the mind's right understanding of the excellencies of God are meant to stir one's affections and move one toward right conduct for the glory of God. Or we could put it this way. The devil of hell has better theology than you. Same thing for me. The devil of hell and his army of darkness knows more about Jesus than you and I do combined. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What's the language there? The demons don't bend their knee and submit to Jesus, right? This is a cognitive thinking. The demons know some things about Jesus, but they don't bend a knee to him as king. Right theology does not mean that you know Jesus or love Jesus or worship Jesus. You can have God knowledge and not know God or be known by God intimately and personally. Or another way we could say it is this. Even an atheist could get a seminary degree. Thanks. I was waiting for an amen this morning. What we need is a a growing understanding of right doctrine that informs and empowers obedience to King Jesus. It's a both and. And apparently, according to Paul, that comes through teaching on the one hand and surrounding ourselves with others who look and smell and sound like Jesus, which is where a shameless plug comes in for community groups. We need community, right? We have blind spots, and they're called blind spots for a reason. I can't see mine. You can't see yours. And so we need others to to look in on our lives and to engage us relationally who can then speak a better word of the gospel into the sin and unbelief that exists in our hearts and in our lives. Um, We're not trying to do a thousand things here really well because I don't think you can do a thousand things really well. That's impossible, right? We want to do a few things really well with excellence, and one of those is our community groups. You heard Jason talking about those as he came up and gave announcements this morning. Very simply, what we believe, here's our philosophy behind community groups. We believe that you can come on Sundays, and that's great, and we want you to do that. We want you to engage, but we ultimately believe that if that's all that you connect with, that uh, it's very easy for what you're hearing to go in one ear and out the other, right? We've, we've all lived in the land of by the time we get to Zaxby's at noon today, and you all wanted Chick-fil-A, but it's closed, so I'm really sorry for you. So you'll be at Zaxby's in about an hour or two. And when you sit there, you will have already forgotten everything I've said on most Sundays, which is really grievous for me that I put all this time into these sermons, and then you forget them. But The beauty of community groups is that you come back to these very same things that we've been talking about on Sundays as we meet in homes throughout the city during the week, and we tether what we're talking about on Sunday mornings to those groups so that you can then sit in a smaller group uh, with people in a living room comfortably and talk about the uncomfortability of sin and unbelief in your life and where this is missing the mark in your life so that Jesus can plant more flags of dominion in your life and that you'll experience more freedom and joy as that happens. And so we want you to get plugged in. We want you to get connected. Find Jason, find me. We'll get you in a group. We'll start a new group just to get you in a group if we need to do that. And we're happy to do that. We don't care about the numbers behind that. We care about your heart. And we believe that this is a huge component of of how God's going to plant those flags of dominion in your life. Paul admonishes this church in Corinth, telling them to get their heads screwed on straight. And ultimately, he's doing so because there's a monster in Corinth, and it's not hiding under the bed. It's not in a closet. It is clearly visible, and it's robbing these people of freedom and joy, and we see that 
in verses 6 through 17, this monster that's on the scene. If you look at verse 6, it says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The, the monster in Corinth is pride. It's ego. We've been talking about it for several weeks now. Paul's been addressing it since chapter 1 when he brought up these divisions, these factions in the church. People are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Peter. And, and there are these camps within the church, and division has taken place. And it's all built on pride at the root under the surface that's creating these factions above ground. It's all built on ego, on, on boasting. I spent some time reading Tim Keller's uh, book. It's a really short book. You can almost call it a pamphlet. Um, it's entitled The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, I read that this week. Uh, Keller unpacks some of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in that book. I would encourage you to go buy that book today. You can get it on Amazon for like a dollar and change if you go for the Kindle version. It's really cheap. You can read it in about 30 minutes or less. It's incredible. And as a result of reading that, God made some things abundantly clear to me with respect to this issue of ego and pride that Paul's dealing with. Um, the word that we translate in verse 6 as puffed up comes from the Greek, the Greek word uh, fusiao, which uh, it, it's only found in Paul's letters. It's predominantly found in 1 Corinthians, which shows you that this is the issue that Paul's driving out with these people more than any other uh, church that's been planted in Paul's day. And it literally means overinflated or bloated or swollen. It conveys this idea of being filled up with so much air that you're ready to burst. Um, think about when you blow up a balloon, right? You, you begin to breathe air into that balloon, and for a while, all feels right in the world. But, but then some of us get a little crazy, and we decide to, to test the limits. And so we put one more breath of air, and all of a sudden, the latex gets a little thinner. We put another breath of air, a little thinner, and all of a sudden, that one breath of air that you shouldn't put in it, you do, and the thing just explodes, and there are pieces of balloon everywhere. The human ego is like air filling the balloon of your being. That'd be one way to describe it. That the more we become full of ourselves, the more empty we become, and the closer we get to our own destruction in the end. Keller makes this really helpful observation that um, you never notice parts of your body until they're, they're not functioning properly. Have you ever thought about that? Um, I never noticed my pinkies, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, until I, I uh, damaged both of them in a kickball accident in elementary school. Never noticed these two digits until that happened, and all of a sudden I realized how badly I need my pinkies, and I'm noticing them constantly. Same thing happens when you bite your tongue, and all of a sudden you can't stop playing with your tongue in your mouth, right? Whenever you injure a part of the body, it comes to the forefront of your mind, and you can't stop thinking about it. Keller says the human ego is the same. The reason that we think about ourselves so much is because our ego is broken, and we can't help but think about ourselves. He, he puts it this way. I'll put this quote up on the screen for you. He says, the ego often hurts. That is because it has something incredibly wrong with it, something unbelievably wrong with it. It is always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It is always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. Think about it, he says. It is very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. That is because there is something wrong with my ego. 
there is something wrong with my identity. There is something wrong with my sense of self. It is never happy. It is always drawing attention to itself. That our sense of self is broken, Keller says, and we'll do anything to mask that pain, whether it be comparing ourselves to others or, or beating our chest about things that just don't matter. And we do that so often, and that's what the saints in Corinth are doing, which is why Paul is writing this letter in the first place. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, more brilliant than Keller, as usual. He says this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. So the person with the faulty sense of self playing the comparison game is not a want. It's a need. It's a have to. There's a hunger for it. For the fragile ego, building a resume is, is a must. Tell you a story. A few years back, I went through a church planting assessment. Always a good idea if you're going to plant a church so that you don't blow up the whole thing yourself. And so I went through this grueling process, and it included questionnaires, a number of questionnaires, theological, biblical, doctrinal questionnaires, pastoral questionnaires, uh, marital questionnaires where they excavated everything in mine and Brooks's marriage, financial questionnaires, uh, questions about uh, sin patterns and things of the past and things of the present in our lives. And ultimately, it ended up being about 150 double-spaced pages. It was grueling. And that led to a phone interview, which lasted for about four hours, where all that stuff got pressed on, which eventually led to a face-to-face where Brooks and I sat across a table from three church planters within our network who asked Brooks and I a number of questions about our marriage and our family and us as individuals and the vision for church planting. And then they sent me out and asked her, who is he really? Which is a great idea because you'll get the truth when you do, when you do that. And so we, we finished up with that whole process and they said, we'll get back to you in about 10 to 14 days with, with an assessment result. In our network, what you hope to receive is an assessment result of approved with minimal conditions. That's what you're hoping for within the Acts 29 network specifically. There are two guys, I think, to my knowledge, that have been approved with absolutely no conditions. One of those is a guy by the name of Elliot Grudem, whose dad wrote a 1,200-page systematic theology book. So that guy went through unscathed. But most of us come out with approved with minimal conditions or maybe approved with a lot of conditions. So there are many things to work on. And so we were hoping for approved with minimal conditions. We received the results. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was the day before family vacation to the beach. I got the email approved with minimal conditions. And, and I breathed a sigh of relief. I felt so good. I thought, man, God is affirming this. We're going to do this. This is going to be amazing. God is at work in our lives here. Guess what happened the next morning when I woke up? Absolute despair. Absolute devastation like I've, I've never experienced in my life, maybe one or two times prior to that. Why? Because I was putting all of my ego eggs in that one basket. For me, the goal was simply to be approved of by this church planting network and by the men of this network, and by my peers who would validate this calling of God on my life to the degree that when that validation came and I woke up the next day and realized I'm standing at the peak of the mountain and I can't claw my way any further, any higher, it crushed me. It devastated me. 
because I had no more resume to build and I needed to do that. See, at that point in my life, what God was doing in terms of planting a flag of dominion, dominion in my life was showing me that for me, the gospel wasn't Christ alone at that moment. It was Christ plus an assessment result for church planting. And it left me devastated. Are you starting to see how Paul's admonishment is a call to freedom here? Paul begins to ask a series of question, questions. Who sees anything different in you? In other words, who, who made you distinct? The answer, God did that, not your fragile ego, Paul says. He, he asks, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. God in his grace gave you every good gift that you have. He asks, if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, what are you doing, guys? Like you're, you're caught up in the bondage of your own ego right now, and there's great freedom in forgetting yourself. In verse 8, and I hope you see the, the sarcasm dripping off the pages here. In verse 8, he says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. This phrase, having all you want, is the language used to describe food in the Bible. It's this idea of having your fill. So this goes back to the language of last week of spiritual milk and solid food. Paul's saying, you think you have your fill. You think there's no more room for food. And actually, pride is choking out everything so that you're starving on the inside. You don't even realize it because you're filled with yourself. Going back to the Blessed series back in the fall, Remember uh, this particular beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That when we actually hunger and thirst for the things of, things of God, we'll, we'll be filled with something that won't puff us up and lead to an explosion in the end. Paul's saying, you think you've arrived. You think you have everything you need. You see yourselves without want, as rich, as king. Now we see what Paul was doing in chapter 3, right, where he uses the language of a field, field in cultivation, a building under construction. He's saying you're a work in progress. You haven't arrived. The harvest is not yet full and completed. But he does say, oh, I'd love for you to reign because that means Jesus has come back and he's made everything sad untrue and I'm not suffering anymore because we're co-heirs with Christ wouldn't that be joyous, Paul says, and he begins to unpack what his life really looks like in verse 9. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. The word spectacle comes from the Greek word theatron. It's where we get our word theater. So we get the idea of going to the movies, so to speak. Paul's saying we're like gladiators being brought up in the arena to die as a spectacle for everyone sitting in the stands looking in on our lives. Verse 10, he goes on to say, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Here comes the sarcasm again. We are weak, but you, Corinthians, are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Anybody want to sign up for that one? Paul knows that to, to be with Jesus is to suffer no more, to inherit all that is Christ's. To inherit the universe as your internal playground, going back to last week. 
To remain here is to live in a fallen, broken, messy world, the land of hunger and poverty and, and painful labor with our hands and persecution and slander and sickness and pain. Jason was sharing a prayer request even before the service about a girl who had to have her eye removed, a friend of his little daughter. And I'm sitting here picturing my daughter having to go through that and what that would look like for us. That's the world we live in. We live in a broken, messy world. This is what would cause Paul to say in uh, Philippians chapter 1, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I'll do it. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul says, I'm here, but this world is messy and it's broken, and oh, to be with Jesus one day. How great would that be? Just as a side note, if someone told you that you should be, become a Christian because it will make all your problems go away, they lied to you. You should, you should get your money back because they sold you a false bill of goods. The cross-centered life is, is not a life of ease, but it is a life of freedom. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's trying to, to free these people from their bondage. David Garland, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, the Christian life is not a fast track to glory, but a slow, arduous path that takes one through suffering. The suffering so visible in the lives of the apostles is not some tedious detour for an elite volunteer corps, but the main highway for all Christians. He goes on to say, by contrasting the cross-centered lifestyles of the apostles with the Corinthians' vain glory, Paul hopes to supplant their egotism with the wisdom of the cross. Paul's screaming to these guys, wake up. You've got it backwards. You're enslaved to your fragile ego, but there's hope. You can actually be free. And he shares what that freedom looks like in verses one through five, which is where we actually see the hope of the gospel. If you look at verse one, he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Okay, here's what Paul's doing. He's bringing himself low here. Right? He's setting his ego aside as a moment of teaching for, for these people. He's referring back to chapter 3 where he refers to himself as the plow boy, the one who plants the seed, and where he refers to Apollos as the water boy, the one who, who waters the seed. The word translated servants here is really interesting. It's not the same word Paul uses in chapter 3 that we looked at last week. It's a different word that can actually literally be translated as an under rower, someone who gets below the deck of the ship and rows the oars to get that ship to where it's going. Verse 2 makes it abundantly clear that in Paul's mind, we're simply called to faithfully row. That that's our calling. That's our that's our job. It's not about our glory. It's not about our ego. It's about our faithfulness to make much of the person and work of Jesus. This kind of language in verses one and two is crushing to a person with a fragile ego. If if you want to build a name for yourself, build a kingdom for yourself, when Paul says you're called to be an under rower, that, that's going to collide with your worldview, right? Because someone below the deck is not seen. You don't even get to be on the deck, much less the crow's nest, right? You're not seen. You're, you're below the surface. You're hidden in Christ so that when people look at you, they see, they see Jesus. It's ego-crushing language, and strangely, it's gloriously freeing. Look at verse 3. Paul says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. To be crystal clear here, Paul is not endorsing the cry of our culture, which is this. Who are you to judge me? That's God's job. Judge not lest you be judged. We hear that all the time in our culture. That's not what Paul's doing here. For one, when we say those things, what we mean is you can't make judgment calls about what you perceive to be sin in my life. That's what we oftentimes mean when we say judge not lest you be judged. It's not your job to point out sin in my life. I hate to be the bearer of, of what might be considered to be bad news to some, but in the very next chapter, chapter five, Paul's going to pronounce judgment on a sexually immoral man in this very same church. That's gonna happen. Chapter five is a church discipline issue, which means that there's some sense in which judgment is being pronounced on sin. But that's not remotely what Paul has in mind here in chapter four. In this morning's text, we're talking about the language of verdict, of validation, of, of approval. Paul's saying he's not driven by man's verdict, by man's approval when it comes to his identity. In other words, he doesn't need the validation of others to affirm that he's a somebody. Remember, he's seeking to free the Corinthians from their fragile egos. That's the goal here. And and here's the, the really interesting thing. Here's the cultural contextual piece. Paul's answer to that is not the answer that our culture might be inclined to offer, which is namely, it doesn't matter what others think of you. It matters what you think of you. So it's time to start determining for yourself who you want to be and then become that somebody. And then when you look in the mirror, you'll feel really good about you. That's not freeing either, by the way. That's not what Paul's saying. Look at verse three. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul says, I don't care what you think and I really don't care what I think either. Keller puts it this way. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Paul says, I'm not seeking validation from others, and I'm not seeking to create my own standard of validation either. I'm free from both. I'm free from all of that. How joyous to be free from the fragile ego and the validation that we seek in others to establish for ourselves. Keller goes on to ask some diagnostic questions. I'm not going to put these up on the screen, but just let me read what Keller says and and sit with this and tell me if this doesn't sound incredibly appealing to you. He asks, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition nor, on the other hand, is frightened to death of it. Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that gives them the edge over others? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and to be tormented by regrets. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum, he says. Wouldn't you like to be free from that as well? And I love the way he finishes out this part of the book. He says, wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal medal winner did? 
to love it the way you love a sunrise, just to love the fact that it was done, for it not to matter whether it was their success or your success, not to care if they did it or you did it. You are as happy as they, uh, that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you are just so happy to see it, period. Keller paints a picture not of a man in bondage, but of a truly free man. Question is, where, where does that come from? How do you get there? How do you get a place where you, to a place where you experience that kind of freedom, the kind of freedom that Paul's talking about? I think the answer is found in verse 4. I think that's the key verse in chapter 4. Paul says this. He says, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's courtroom language, the language of acquittal. It's the language of being declared righteous or innocent before the judge. The question is, what's the basis of Paul's righteousness, Paul's innocence? The answer, the Sunday school answer is right here, Jesus. Right? The person focused on the self and the ego is always on trial, always seeking validation from others, always looking for a validating verdict. And I don't know what that looks like for you. We all battle that, I think. For some of us, it's every circle that we find ourselves in socially. It doesn't matter who it is. We're looking for validation from anyone and everyone. We crave it. We hunger for it. We're always in the courtroom on trial. For some of us, it's, it's not with friends, but maybe with family, or maybe it's vice versa for you. It's not with your family, but it's with a certain group of friends, or maybe your coworkers. Where do you find yourself in the courtroom? Where do you find yourself on trial seeking that validating verdict from other people? The world says you're always on trial. The gospel says trial's over. Keller goes on to say it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. There's the difference between moralism and the gospel. Moralism says if I do good, if I obey, then God will love me. The gospel says God does love me and has shown his love to me in Christ. And in response to that, I'm compelled to now live a life worthy of the honor of the king that I submit and bend my knee to. Christ is the basis of our acquittal. Jesus went on trial for us. He stood in the courtroom that we should have stood in, and the trial is, is over. Keller goes on to say, the verdict is in, and now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because he loves me and he accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I do not have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people just to help people. Not so I can feel better about myself, not so I can fill up the emptiness. The gospel says that Jesus lived a life that you and I could never live, a perfect, righteous, innocent life, and he died the death that we deserve to die, bearing the punishment of our guilty verdict in our place. And for those who will fix their eyes on Jesus, they will be free that for those who will fix their eyes on Jesus, court is no longer in session. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.